throughout the Arab Revolt, which ran from 1936 to 1939, powerful bombs tore through outdoor markets in Haifa, Jaffa, and Jerusalem, killing dozens of innocent civilians going about their day. Buses were attacked, cafes were raked with gunfire, people were shot to death at point-blank range. And these attacks were not always carried out by the Arabs, but also sometimes by Jewish militants from the Irgun. Some called them freedom fighters. Ben-Gurion called them terrorists. They called themselves Hayalim al-Monim, anonymous soldiers. Either way, they are a legacy of Vladimir Jabotinsky's break from mainstream Zionism, even though he himself was deeply ambivalent about their tactics. Israel still debates today the question of how to respond to Arab violence and whether some acts of self-defense might go too far. The Irgun challenges us to think hard about all this, the trade-offs and the sacrifices, and how some choices, even in retrospect, seem kind of impossible. And that's today's topic. This is Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. To understand where the Irgun was coming from, we have to go back a bit to talk about Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky. One of the reasons why I find him so interesting is that there's pretty much a direct line between how he interpreted what he experienced as a youth and then how he acted as a leader of the Zionist movement. As a young boy in Odessa, which today is in the Ukraine but back then was part of Tsarist Russia, Jabotinsky saw the violent pogroms that afflicted the Jewish communities there, how weak and poor Jews were persecuted by those in power, and from this experience, Jabotinsky drew the conclusion that Jews needed to learn how to defend themselves. This single-minded commitment, really it was an obsession, to Jewish self-defense carried him from his early involvement in Zionism to the point where he was probably its most influential leader after Theodore Herzl. So when you think Jabotinsky, you think Jewish self-defense, and if nothing else, I hopefully can leave you with that. But Odessa was also a cosmopolitan city, and Jabotinsky also spent time in his life in places like Rome and London. And from these experiences, he came away with an appreciation for those kinds of Western cultural values that they had there, like equal rights and religious freedom, liberalism and democracy. And he brought those ideas to Zionism as well. So Jabotinsky had this complex mix of right-wing militant Jewish nationalism with progressive democratic ideals. And that's why he could hold what seems like paradoxical ideas. That the Arabs will never accept the Jewish homeland in Palestine, but that any Arabs who end up in the future Jewish state should have equal rights, full citizenship, and freedom of worship. It also led him to a maximalist position when it came to the goals of the Zionist movement. In the 1920s and 30s, mainstream Zionism did not yet have as its official goal the creation of a Jewish state. Since the various factions could never quite decide how such a state should look, the movement itself officially only backed the goal of having a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Seems like a small difference, but it's actually kind of big. And as I've talked about in the last few episodes, the mainstream Zionist movement was open to negotiation over how large a territory that would be. Jabotinsky, though, rejected all that. He insisted that a Jewish homeland wasn't enough. The Jews needed an actual state where they could be the majority, so that they alone could control their destiny. And that state should encompass all the historic Jewish homeland, all of current Palestine. So not just what is today Israel, but also today's Jordan, which back then was called Transjordan. 
He insisted on having the maximum amount of territory with the maximum amount of Jewish immigration. Another area of complexity was the relationship with the British. The part of him that witnessed the pogroms and was obsessed with Jewish self-defense hated the British for compromising with the Arabs on territory and Jewish immigration. But the part of him that was into Western democracy desperately wanted to work with the British to build up Jewish self-defense and to create that Jewish state. So he was all about trying to influence British public opinion and through them the British government to support Zionism and to allow for Jewish immigration. All of these complexities and his leadership style, they were great when Jabotinsky was a rising star and our Zionist tree was developing these different ideological branches. But it also left him vulnerable when the tree had matured. Because those even further right than him accused him of wishful thinking, of coddling the left, of betraying his professed values whenever he looked for a compromise solution. And those on the left, like the labor Zionists, they accused him of being some kind of militant fascist lunatic with delusions of grandeur. The point of all this, and yes, I do have a point, is that Jabotinsky's thinking led first to an ideological split with Zionism, then a political one, and finally, by the Arab Revolt, a military one. So I'm recapping the background here so we can understand where the Igun came from and why various decisions were made. By the mid-1920s, the gulf between his beliefs and the mainstream Zionist movement led by Chaim Weizmann and David Ben-Gurion strained to the point where they broke. That's when he created his own Zionist tree branch called Revisionism. And the purpose of Revisionist Zionism was to revise the mainstream Zionist movement. The mainstream movement wasn't yet committed to establishing a Jewish state, but they did advocate slowly and steadily creating a Jewish homeland in some part of Palestine. And as I've said, Jabotinsky and the Revisionists were maximalist. None of this, a few Jews at a time business, they wanted the most amount of immigration in all of the historic Jewish territory, where the Jews would have a majority on both sides of the Jordan River. And so to achieve this, the revisionists wanted to work closely with the British, who, Jabotinsky believed, could be persuaded to support the cause. Now this ideological split in the 1920s led to a full-on political split in 1935, a year before the Arab Revolt. The revisionists completely split away from the mainstream Zionist movement by forming their own separate Zionist organization. This is all like getting really far into the weeds, but here's the main thing. The revisionist Zionist organization set about creating its own copycat institutions to what the labor Zionists were running in the Yishuv. So for instance, where the labor Zionists had the Histadrut as their trade union, the revisionists set up their own separate trade union. It's like if the Democrats were to set up their own separate government agencies when the Republicans were in the White House. And amongst those organizations was a separate revisionist military, the Irgun. The National Military Organization, called the Irgun, was started in 1931 as a separate entity from the Haganah, which was the mainstream Zionist movement's defense organization. That music you hear in the background is the Irgun's anthem. The Haganah is like the Israeli army before there was the Israeli army. Actually, it's not like it really was the Israeli army before there was the Israeli army. Both of these organizations were underground militias, in the sense that they were not official government armies. They were technically illegal. 
The only official army in Palestine, of course, was the British one, since they controlled the mandate. And even though the Irgun was separate from Haganah, at first they still followed the Haganah's lead. I've talked about the policy of restraint, Havlaga, over the last few episodes. This was the Haganah's policy, and the Irgun followed it. Until, that is, the Arab revolts. And you can appreciate how the mass violence of the Arabs, plus the growing opposition of the British to a Jewish homeland, it left a lot of Jews feeling like not enough was being done to protect them, and that their future was in jeopardy. And so a number of people started advocating for stronger self-defense measures, and some, naturally, wanted to retaliate for the attacks. And these retaliations were strongly opposed by the Zionist movement. The Haganah, of course, held to its policy of restraint, supported completely by Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion thought that the Arabs had overstepped in resorting to violence, that they had lost the moral high ground and consequently were hurting their cause. Jabotinsky was also opposed to any movement away from restraint. Remember, he always wanted the British to take the Jewish side, and he thought that the violent Arab revolt would convince the British that it was high time for an official Jewish defense force. But the idea of retaliation took hold, and it was particularly powerful in the Irgun, which was already the more militant and nationalist of the two organizations. And that's because a lot of the members of the Irgun also had experiences as children that informed their behavior, like Jabotinsky. A lot of them came from Eastern Europe, especially Poland, where they had experienced unrelenting persecution that wasn't tempered by Jabotinsky's brush with Western cosmopolitanism. In their experiences, there's no such thing as liberalism and democratic values. It was a very tough world, and they had come to Palestine precisely to prevent themselves and their families from being persecuted any longer. But now here too it was happening, and these foot soldiers were determined not to let it happen anymore. The threat posed by Arab violence, they argued, was too great to ignore. Jabotinsky's relationship with the Irgun was a little complicated. Following the riots of 1929, when Jabotinsky played an aggressive role in organizing Jewish self-defense, the British kicked him out of Palestine and refused to let him back. So he spent the 1930s couchsurfing around Europe and America, drumming up support for revisionism, building its institutions and fundraising. He was the father of the Irgun, its moral inspiration and its spiritual leader, but he wasn't the direct commander so he wasn't in charge of the day-to-day -day operations on the ground in Palestine. And because the Irgun was an illegal underground militia, it wasn't technically a part of the revisionist movement. So while Jabotinsky officially had nothing to do with the Irgun, he still thought that they should do what he told them. And by the way, it was a similar situation with the Haganah and Ben-Gurion. The point is that if you're in the Irgun, you worship Jabotinsky as your spiritual and political guru but you don't feel any need to listen when he tells you to do something. And this weird relationship translated into weird policies from Jabotinsky. When the Arab revolt began, he declared both that he supported the Irgun responding aggressively to Arab violence and that he thought it would be a moral mistake for them to do so. He worried that innocent Arab men, women, and children would be caught up in the violence, and even though that's what the Arabs were doing to the Jews, Jabotinsky refused to support that kind of retaliation. But he ultimately decided that since he wasn't on the ground in Palestine, it wasn't really his place to micromanage their operations. Only if they really wanted to do something big would he demand to approve it. In other words, 
Don't tell me. I don't want to know too much. On November 14, 1937, at 7 in the morning, the Irgun declared an end to Havlaga. In two separate neighborhoods in Jerusalem, just minutes apart, Irgun fighters ran up to four innocent Arabs and shot them. Two died. A few hours later, another Irgun fighter hijacked an Arab bus, killing three. By the end of the day, the Irgun had indiscriminately killed ten Arabs and wounded a couple dozen more. It became known as Black Sunday and was condemned by everyone. The Jewish Agency, the central governing organization of the Yishuv, which was led by Ben-Gurion, accused the Irgun of compromising the Jews' moral cause. But for the Irgun, Black Sunday was just the first step. The shame of restraint was lifted, they said. Now the Arabs know that the Jews will fight back, and the Arabs are scared. Yet the Arab revolt continued, and the back-and-forth attacks became an unfortunate part of everyday life. Had it stayed that way, it would have been bad enough. But something happened in the spring of 1938 that deeply affected Jabotinsky, the Irgun, and the nature of Jewish self-defense. Shlomo ben Yosef was a 24-year-old Polish citizen who had just recently arrived in Palestine. After Arab fighters attacked a carload of Jewish civilians on the main road outside Sfat, murdering six of them, ben Yosef and his compatriots decided to strike back. They lay in ambush for an Arab bus along the same stretch of highway. As the bus came around the corner, they fired several shots to slow it down, and ben Yosef tossed a grenade underneath it. The grenade failed to detonate and the bus and its occupants got away. But Ben Yosef was quickly captured by the British, put on trial, and convicted. And then came the real shock. He received the death sentence. The Yeshuv was outraged, as were Jews around the world, who demanded that the British release him, or at least commute his sentence. Ben Yosef became a global Jewish cause, and even the Polish government got involved to protest his sentence. Ben Gurion, who hated the Irgun and kind of thought that Ben Yosef got into this mess on his own, also thought that the British were making a huge mistake, the outcome of which was going to make the relationship with the Jews even worse than it already was. The reason for the shock and outrage was that the British were executing him, the first Jew to be given the death sentence, not for his crime. There wasn't much of one, as no one got hurt. They were executing him purely for political reasons, to try to show the Arabs that they were even-handed in their response to violence. But by making this act of justice political, they turned Ben Yosef into a political symbol. And he played it up, declaring his pride in being a Jew to die for his country. Let the world see that Jews are not afraid to face death, he said. On June 29, 1938, he was led to the gallows. And as the noose was placed around his neck, he called out, Long live the Jewish state. Long live Jabotinsky. His death was mourned all over the world, from Lithuania to Poland to Amsterdam, where Jewish communities virtually shut down to honor the latest Jewish Zionist martyr. In Palestine, the Jews fought with the British police all over the country and were also pissed at the Jewish agency. Had he been given a jail sentence, no doubt he would have been remembered as a criminal, for that's how Ben-Gurion and the mainstream Zionist movement saw him and his compatriots. But the British executed him because they wanted to send a message of support to the Arabs who were rebelling to stop the Jewish homeland. And so the narrative of his death 
became one in which he sacrificed his life for the Jewish cause, making him into a powerful symbol of resistance. And the fact that he was a revisionist made it look like it was the anonymous soldiers of the Irgun standing up for the Jews, not those liberal wimps over at the Jewish agency with their naive policy of restraint. We know that Jabotinsky was deeply emotionally affected by his experiences, and this one was no different. Ben Yosef's execution, and no doubt his last words, had a huge impact. It shattered Jabotinsky's decades-long faith that the British would come around, that they would see the moral justice of Zionism and the need for a Jewish homeland, and would act to help save the Jewish people. But now, he no longer believed that, and so he no longer saw much in the merits of Havlaga. It didn't help that on the day of Ben Yosef's execution, Arab terrorists murdered 21 Jews in Palestine, and then capped the day off by throwing a bomb into a wedding in Tiberias, injuring several children. Something clicked for Jabotinsky. He gave his permission, finally, for the Irgun's commanders to act as they see a fit. Unleash the Hayalim al-Monim. Led by a new commander named David Raziel, the Irgun resolved to up the ante in the war with the Arabs. The Irgun's anonymous soldiers had lately pioneered a new kind of terrorist attack, one familiar to all of us today, but back then almost unique in its horror. It was the sensational terrorist act of fear and awe that through total violence would fill all who witnessed it with amazement and dread. There was no military objective, no claim of direct self-defense, simply violence to make a point. On July 6, 1938, an Irgun fighter dressed as an Arab placed two large canisters inside Haifa's crowded central market. They were filled with explosives and nails and bits of metal, and an hour later, one went off. As the crowd panicked and began running, the second bomb exploded. Eighteen Arabs and five Jews were killed, and dozens more wounded. Less than three weeks later, at the exact same spot, in the exact same market in Haifa, the Irgun set off another bomb. This one so large as to, according to the Irgun, leave a long echo in the streets of the world. Fifty Arabs were killed, probably that many wounded. In the subsequent riot, four Jews were killed and the British shut down the entire city. The Irgun continued these spectacular attacks throughout the summer of 1938, what became a vicious circle. Each attack by an Arab against a Jew resulted in a retaliatory attack from the Irgun, and each attack by the Irgun resulted in another attack by the Arabs. By the way, if you want to find a list of Irgun attacks online, it's pretty easy. But if you're looking for a comprehensive list of Arab attacks on the Jews, good luck. I couldn't find one. But while the Arabs weren't bombing marketplaces, their attacks were also cruel, targeting women and children in small Jewish villages that were difficult to defend. Buses, cars, and trains would be attacked and the Jewish passengers murdered. Arab terrorists would walk into a random shop and shoot dead any Jew who happened to be in there. All this violence didn't persuade either side, of course. It only served to radicalize even further those who were already on the extreme end. Ben-Gurion and the rest of the mainstream Zionist movement were clear where they stood. Unequivocal condemnation of the Irgun. These terrorist attacks not only hurt the cause for a Jewish homeland, they said, but were an absolute moral failing that threatened the entire Jewish community. Things were so bad that the Haganah hinted it might take up arms against the Irgun if the Irgun didn't go back to Havlaga. Jabotinsky said that if the Haganah came after the Irgun, there would be a Jewish civil war. The Irgun had an argument. 
Arab terrorism works, they said, and they were right. The Arabs announced a strategy of violence, the British appeased them, and the Jews suffered for it. The Irgun said, we won't do that any longer. We have to fight back. If Arab terrorism works, then Jewish terrorism should also work. And either way, we'll put everyone on notice that to murder Jews will guarantee a response, because we are just as strong as they are. And if I'm being honest, I find at least part of this argument compelling, and I understand what the Irgun was trying to do. Now, as I'll talk about next time, the Irgun was about a lot more than just acts of retaliation. But equally honestly, I don't think there's any justification for blowing up a market filled with innocent people, no matter the cause. I'm with Ben-Gurion, that these actions left a moral blight on the Zionist record. And although it was done in defense of the Jewish people, it was inexcusable. And it was wrong. Jabotinsky was also never really comfortable with these acts of terrorism. He expressed his outrage at attacks on innocent civilians and often insisted that the Irgun dial it all down. It was unacceptable, he said, that women, children, and the elderly be harmed. But pretty soon even Ben-Gurion became fed up with Havlaga. In May of 1939, the British issued their infamous White Paper, repudiating the Balfour Declaration, promising to create an Arab homeland in Palestine instead of a Jewish one, and severely restricting Jewish immigration to the point of freezing it. The purpose of the White Paper, which I talked about last week, was to curry favor with the Arabs to protect British strategic interests in the Middle East. But as many commentators noted at the time, the White Paper only really had one concrete result. It really pissed off the Jews. Refusing to apologize for Jewish riots against the British police after the White Paper was issued, Ben-Gurion declared that the time had come for a Jewish resistance movement in Palestine. Going forward, the Yishuv would direct its efforts towards two things, illegal immigration and turning the Haganah into a legit army. Havlaga was over. There would be no more restraint. So the Haganah created a special strike force to carry out attacks against the British and to retaliate against the Arabs for their attacks. This unit wasn't a terrorist outfit, like the Irgun. They didn't attack innocent civilians, but instead the institutions that manifested British policy against the Jews. So police stations, patrol boats, the oil pipeline near Haifa, things like that. They didn't last long and weren't particularly effective, but they did achieve a symbolic purpose. They showed the Jewish community that the Haganah had their back, that they didn't need to support the extremists of the Irgun, that the British should now be as afraid of the Jews as of the Arabs, and that Ben-Gurion was the kind of bold, savvy wartime leader that the Jewish people needed to run the show in Palestine. The White Paper of 1939 brought an end to the Arab Revolt, and by the summer the fighting ceased. In the three years of the revolt, the Irgun staged over 60 attacks, killing 250 Arabs. But when the Arabs stopped attacking the Jews, the Irgun stopped retaliating. By August, everyone seemed to take a collective breath and to wonder what would happen next. What happened next was that on September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. World War II had begun. So as usual, I am kicking myself for leaving out so much interesting stuff. There's a lot more to say about the nature of the Irgun and the moral arguments that it raises. Now, the outbreak of war left the Yishuv with a huge dilemma. They obviously couldn't support Nazi Germany. 
But they were also ramping up a resistance campaign against the British to fight the white paper and to preserve what was left of the Zionist dream for a Jewish homeland and to save as many Jewish lives in Europe as possible. So unlike in the First World War, allying with the British to support the mandate would be counterproductive to the Zionist cause. But not helping the British, or especially fighting against the British, would hurt the war effort and strengthen Germany. And could the Yishuv even act as a unified front when the Irgun and the Haganah were ready to tear each other apart? It was hard to know what to do. Ben-Gurion, though, he had the answer. That's next time. Have a good week.